Okay, Genesis House, why don't we uh, stand together, reading from chapter 3 of 2 Peter, uh, beginning at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Lord, we are looking forward to opening up your scriptures again and uh, diving in. We uh, appreciate all the truth that you have contained in it, and we love learning about it, and we love to know how to apply it to our lives. We pray that today be no different as we remember your second coming. And uh, yeah, just may your spirit oversee our service. And uh, yeah, just encourage us and strengthen us and teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So if you didn't hear me, you're going to have to stick your finger in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as well, uh, just for future reference. But today we're continuing in our theme from chapter 3, which has been the second coming of the Lord. Uh, known in scripture from the Old and New Testament as the Day of the Lord. Now I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me and been a Christian for a while, you've heard no shortage of teaching on this. And you probably already have a preconceived notion of the events and how they're going to unfold and what this might look like. For others, who are maybe newer, uh, you're not even sure totally what the Day of the Lord entails and what that means. And so you'll have a lot of questions surrounding this event. But it doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum, um, it doesn't matter at all. Because I was reminded this week that no matter where you are, this is actually a difficult subject matter to approach. It's really difficult. I mean, I went to my go-to commentaries, and I went to the, some of the, the men that I often speak to who I consider uh, uh, people that I would want to hear truth from, and uh, asked them a few questions that I had while studying, uh, and they admitted that they actually didn't have all the clear answers to my questions either. And I, don't th I think if anyone was honest, uh, who was a preacher or teacher in this subject, they would, I don't think they would say they have every question and every answer and every I dotted and every T crossed. There's so much opinion on this day of the Lord that uh, the, our, our denomination, the FMCIC, Free Methodist Church in Canada, um, has no official statement on it. They just say the Lord's coming back, but they don't start speaking about all the different positions about this because they understand that it's, it's, you can be a pastor and a church within our denomination and hold differences of opinion on this and it's okay. For other denominations, it's a deal breaker. You can't be a pastor in their denomination unless you hold to their specific stance. Um, so, again, so it's very, it's hot, hotly debated. Now, I admit that when I come into this uh, today, usually I don't feel super, super inadequate when I start preaching the Word of God because I feel confident in the subject matter. But today I come in with fear and trembling because I'm opening up to myself to a subject matter that like I said, it divides denominations and people have so much uh, beliefs about and I don't have a lot of unanswered questions myself. So uh, I come to you uh, knowing that uh, I may not be able to answer everything in the dialogue and, and whatnot, 
but at the same time I have prepared myself and I've learned some new things and had to change my position on certain things that I may have held before and I'm going to do my best to speak only the truthful statements from the passage so I'm not going to try to get into like all these theories I'm going to try to make absolute statements that are undeniable from the passage and I've divided the outline into four things four aspects of the Lord's return the day of the Lord and the first one is has to do with the nature of his return how is he going to return and who is he going to return for there are some within the Christian community that believe that when Jesus comes back like a thief he is coming for the church he's coming for his bride pick this up in verse 10 he says but the day of the Lord will come like a thief which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work shall be burned up so there are Christians out there that believe that the, that the Lord is coming back like a thief to gather us, to gather believers. Dan was telling me when he was a worship pastor at Foothills Alliance, they used to sing a song about Jesus coming like a thief in the night for the church. Um, it, I actually looked it up on YouTube to see if I could find it, and I did. And the, the, and the chorus goes like this. So I will sing the glories of your name. Your awesomeness I will proclaim until you come, until you come and take your bride away like a thief in the night. Now that's interesting when you think of Jesus being a thief. I don't know about you, but when I think of a thief, I don't view a thief in a positive light. I was reminding this a few years ago at Drake Landing in my old home. It's about two in the morning and I hear the shattering of glass just startled me out of my bed. And Janice and I heard it and we just like shot up like you know in, like you know like, what was that noise and the first thing I thought of is someone's broken the glass in our door to get in the house and uh, my heart started pounding and I had to get dressed more appropriately and I start sort of sneaking downstairs like quietly just in case it was a thief and I could like you know see who it was turns out that one of my shelves on my uh, that we had mounted to the wall over time the the brackets had loosened up and it tilted and the vase had slid off slowly and it hit the ground and just shattered so anyway but what the thing is though in my brain i thought someone's broken into our house and shattered the glass this thief i understood was a negative was in a negative context they're here to destroy they're here to do me harm they're not here for a good and yet we sing and we believe that the Christ is coming back like a thief in the night for his bride. When we look at scripture, we actually see that to see that Christ as a thief in regards to us is a complete misunderstanding. When Jesus and the apostles spoke of him coming like a thief, it was not for his church, but for a time of judgment of the unbelieving world. It's clear enough in Peter, when he says in verse 10, the Lord will come like a thief. He says this, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. And look in verse 12, it says, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Right, so again, this is a time of like burning up, destruction. This is important. But even more so, we see this in other places. Jesus in Matthew 24, right before he describes his second coming, like a thief, because Jesus says, he says, I'm coming like a thief. He then gives you the context and what he meant. Check this out in Matthew 24. He says, For the coming of the Son of Man will just be, be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, there were, we were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will all this, the coming of the Son of Man be. What's important here is that um, Jesus is comparing his second coming to the times of Noah. What happened in the times of Noah? The, uh, God unexpectedly and suddenly showed up to the unbelieving world and completely destroyed it. And they had no idea that this was going to happen, even though uh, Noah had been warning them about this. And Jesus is saying this, just like the, 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 the flood took out the unbelieving world, just like that, just like the unexpected nature of it, so I'm coming like a thief in the unexpected nature of it, but not to redeem the bride. In the context of being like a thief, it is for the destruction of the ungodly. But the key passage for us to really cement this in our head is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And you need to turn there with me. Starting in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So here we go. Paul can use this language because Jesus has used this language in describing himself. So now he's going to describe the coming like a thief. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon women with child. And they will not escape. But you, there's a contrast, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. See the contrast? The they, in verse 3, are who? The ungodly, the unbelievers. Jesus is coming like a thief to destroy them. Verse 4, he says, but you are not going to be overtaken like a thief. That's not going to happen to you. There's no destruction for you. You are of the light. That's not going to happen to you. I'm not coming for you like a thief. I'm coming for you like a savior. I'm coming for you as a savior, not a thief. That's important. The only attribute that Christians will share with the unbelieving world when it comes to Jesus being a thief will be the sudden nature of his appearance. That's it. That's it. That's the only attribute. Where he's not coming for us for judgment. He's coming for us as a savior. But, even though he's coming suddenly, Scripture makes it very clear that it won't take us to a, by surprise. It won't take us by surprise the same way it will be unbelieving world. Which leads me to the second thing I want to discuss regarding the day of the Lord, and it's this right here. The certainty of particular events. There's a certainty of particular events that have to occur before the Lord returns. Now this is a massive topic. I mean, people get into all, there's books written, like thick volumes, all sorts of stuff about what's going to happen before he comes back, and it's a huge, huge subject. I'm going to keep it very simple, and just look at two key events that have to occur by turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it 
as if, of this, sorry, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So again, these, these Thessalonians have had some people die and they're in the grave and they're still alive and they're worried because they're like, if, if the people in the, the grave have not heard about the Lord's return, sorry, people in the grave have been dead and the Lord hasn't come back yet, have they missed it? Have they missed the chance to be resurrected and go? And so this is the issue in the church. And so Paul has to correct these things. But he says this, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come, unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Look at verse 9. Um, he says, he will come in accord with the activity of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. So the two key events are the apostasy and the coming of the man of lawlessness. So what's apostasy? Apostasy is when someone deliberately abandons a formally professed position or allegiance. Now, it doesn't have to just be in religious context. It can also refer to military or political rebellion. We have examples of this in Second Peter, right? These false teachers were once believers. They are now teaching false doctrine, and, and they've rebelled and abandoned their faith, and they're now going after the church that Peter's trying to address. But what's unique about the apostasy here is that it's described as the apostasy. You notice that? For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So it's describing, the language seems to describe a specific event, a unique period of time, not the general rebellious attitude of humans, which have had uh, towards God since the beginning of time and continues to this day. It seems to be an event that will be a time in history that is unparalleled since the days of Noah. It will be a worldwide total disdain and rebellion towards God that will be obvious to Christians. We'll know it. We'll see it. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be just completely un, uh, knowable and understandable. There will be no guess as to, is this the time? Is this the time? It'll be obvious. A worldwide rebellion against God. Just like it would have been the days of Noah. Now the reason for the apostasy is, is prevalent here. The presence of the arrival of a man by the name of the man of lawlessness. Now, our, in our generation, our Christian community, we call this guy the Antichrist. So that'd be a fitting, fitting uh, category. But he gives a description of these, this guy's characteristics. In verse 4, he tells us that he'll be so arrogant that he will claim to be God and demand to be worshipped. He says, he, who, he opposes, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. Right? So this guy is going to be so arrogant to claim to be God and demand worship. Revelation 13 reveals he'll be very successful at his job. He says that the world will indeed fall for his deception and will give him the worship that he desires. Now there's various reasons for this. I don't have time to get to, into all of them. But the key for us is in verse 9. This guy empowered by Satan will perform many miracles. And the miracles that he'll perform will just enthrall the people. And if I understand Revelation 13 correctly, it, it appears that the greatest miracle he will do will be to fake death and resurrection. 
So he'll, the world will think that someone's died and that this man, by his power, has raised that person to life. And he'll create an incredible following through that miracle. But the key marker I don't want you to miss here, too, is that he sets himself in the temple in Jerusalem. He takes a seat in the temple of God, verse 4. Now, this is significant because if you remember, there's no temple in Jerusalem for him to occupy. The first temple, destroyed by Babylon. Second temple, destroyed by the Romans under Titus in AD 70. This means a third temple has to be built. You know what's interesting? There's currently in Israel plans in progress for the new temple. Right now. I want to share with you a couple things. This is a picture that I took in Israel in February. That's a menorah. Exact dimensions of the one in the first and second temple built purely out of gold. That is not a fake replica. That one is going in the third temple when it's built. It's, ensh it's enshrined in this glass container. And this was built by, the, by, by the, the craftsmen in Jerusalem, or in Israel. And this is ready for the third temple. They're building temple furniture. This was in the Holy of Holies uh, when you'd walk in the temple. In fact, well, you and I couldn't even see it anyway. Because you and I wouldn't be allowed in there. Because we're Gentiles. So the priests would see this. But they built one already. They started building temple furniture. Not only this. Well, there's, me and, there's a picture of Dan, Jody, and I standing in front of it. Uh, there's an article I found from Israel Today talking about the training of the Levitical priesthood for service in the temple. Listen to this. School for Temple Priests opens in Jerusalem. The Temple Institute has announced the opening of a school to train descendants of the tribe of Levi for their eventual return to service in the third temple. We are extremely excited to announce this new step towards the restoration of the Holy Temple service. We call first and foremost upon the Kohenim Levitical priests worldwide to support the special project, which signifies a return to the birthright. Read a statement from Temple Institute Director Rabbi Kaim Rishman. So, the Jewish people are preparing for Temple Number 3, the one that the Antichrist eventually has to rule. Well, there's a lot of discussion in Israel about where is this third temple going to be built? Because when you go there, there's a huge structure on the Temple Mount that seems to be occupying the space where the temple should go. It's the Dome of the Rock. This is a picture from us standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. Okay, you'll notice the big uh, building there with the golden dome that belongs to the Muslims. That's, a, that's, where they, that's their place of worship, right? That's their main building. And here we have uh, them in the midst of the Jerusalem temple with this huge structure. And so people say, there's no, there's no place for the temple because that's in its way. So how is God going to remove that to put a new temple in place? That's kind of the discussion that goes on. But what's really cool is when you read scripture and go to the temple mount itself, you realize this is not the case. There's actually room for a third temple. It begins with our understanding of the sacrifice of the red heifer described in Numbers 19. Similar to other sacrifices, the red heifer was symbolic for purification of sin. The red heifer was also without blemish and was perfect, but it was unique. The red heifer didn't occur, the sacrifice didn't occur inside the temple. When they were in the wilderness, 
it happened outside the camp when they did the tabernacle. But when they moved the temple to Jerusalem, they didn't sacrifice it in the temple, they moved the sacrifice outside the city walls. So you can see the city walls uh, in that picture, that big brick, or not brick, the stone structure. So that was the city walls, and so they would come outside of that and sacrifice outside. After the animal was burnt, they kept the ashes to purify people who primarily came in contact with dead bodies. So the ashes of the heifer were poured into some kind of water, and you'd pour the water on a person if you came in contact with a dead body. The priest would do that. Now Peter, who you've heard speak at our church, who's the expert in Israel, I've talked to him about this, he taught me that in first and second temple history, the sacrifice of the red heifer occurred on the Mount of Olives outside the city. So the Mount of Olives, where, I'm, where we're standing here, where these trees is looking over into the, to the, the temple area. It occurred at the Mount of Olives. Now when you looked across from the valley, into, from the Mount of Olives directly to, to the temple, you could see through the Eastern Gate into the temple sanctuary. Do you see this gate in the picture to the right? It's like higher than the rest of the brick wall. You'll see it's, it's on the right hand side. The sacrifice would occur directly in line with that gate and you can see they're cemented up or cemented up or regular blocked up, I guess. I'm using my own construction materials from my day. They, but they're, but they're, they're blocked, so you can't see through. Notice how the dome is off to the off side of it, to the left. I'm on an angle, but, so when you get close and look through the gate, the dome is actually quite a bit closer. So the picture looks like it's this far apart. It's actually sort of more like this when you're directly in line. So what's really cool there is when you see this, you can see the dome is not aligned with the Eastern Gate. Is, which is what you could see through the Mount of Olives. You could look through the Eastern Gate right into the temple if you'd been the sacrifice of the red heifer. So the question then is, if that's the case, is there room beside the dome for a third temple? Well, the answer is yes. This is uh, Jody Jansen taking a picture. You can see her shadow there. This is her and Dan standing behind the space. So the dome from this picture is to, to the left. You see that huge open area there? There is room for a third temple. That building doesn't have to fall for a third temple to be present in that place. That's really cool. It's only things you'll learn if you actually go to the Holy Land. But that's controlled by Muslim headquarters. So Jewish people aren't even allowed there as far as I know. But here's an interesting fact though. When the, the Jews believe that when Messiah returns, he will enter into the city through the eastern gate to take his rightful place as ruler in the temple. You can cross-reference this, Ezekiel 43, 1-5. Ezekiel 43, 1-5, when Jesus returns, he will, he will enter in through the eastern gate of the temple to come in to, from Jerusalem, into Jerusalem. It was the gate he used when he came in his first ministry when he'd enter into the temple and things like Palm Sunday and whatnot. So he'd been through that gate before. Now the Muslims took the claim, the Jewish belief, so seriously that Christ was coming back. They know the prophecy in Ezekiel. They take it so seriously, they did two things to try to prevent him from coming back. Number one, they sealed the gate. That's the Muslims who did that. They did that to try to seal the gate to prevent Jesus from coming in. Because they know about the prophet Jesus and, and the Israel's uh, Jewish teachings. They want to prevent him from coming through, so they did that. Number two, they built, can you see a huge graveyard in front of the wall? That whole thing's a graveyard. 
Because why? Jewish people will not be def defiled by standing on, on and going into grave sites and dead bodies, right? You're not, that's what the red heifer ashes are for if you come into contact with uh, dead bodies. So they built a huge graveyard in front of the city walls so that if the Messiah comes, he would get defiled if he tried to enter. <laughs> so the Muslims believe the prophecy of Ezekiel 43. They took huge precautions to make sure he could never come through that gate. This is crazy cool stuff. I don't know about you, but I love this stuff. If you don't, I apologize for the long-winded explanation, but this stuff excites me about scripture. So again, why bring all this up? The Antichrist must take a seat in the temple. There has to be a third temple. And this is just background as to how this will take place and what this may look like for you. So even though Christ's return is imminent, He's not coming back tomorrow. He's not even coming back in a year from now. Not even, like maybe not even five years. Once this temple starts to be constructed, and once I start seeing this being built, then I'll start to think, okay, just a matter of time now before something happens. So again, when, when we have all these teaching out there about, um, you know, you better be careful, you better be ready for the Christ return, certain events have to take place before he comes back. When he comes like a thief, he surprises the unbelieving world because they don't know about the stuff. The Christian goes, oh, the apostasy is here. Oh, the Antichrist is here. Oh, the temple is here. Okay? want to just say one more thing just for fun. This is, this is, this is really cool. But, uh, speak about, speaking more about the red heifer, do you understand the incredible foreshadowing the red heifer has for Jesus Christ? Here's the parallels. They're both a sacrifice for purification from sin. They're both without blemish, they're perfect. As a, a heifer was sacrificed outside the camp, Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. And just as the ashes of the red heifer cleanse people from the contamination of death, so the sacrifice of Christ saves us from the penalty and corruption of death. Now, the sacrifice of the red heifer occurred on the Mount of Olives by the high priest, in which the high priest would then enter into the city gate of the east. When Jesus comes, you know where he returns? As our high priest, according to Hebrews, he returns on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14. When he comes back, he hits the Mount of Olives, splits it in two. That's his first entry from heaven into this world, on the Mount of Olives, facing the eastern gate. Exactly the foreshadowing of the red heifer as the high priest. And as Ezekiel says, he's going to go through that gate once again. <laughs> it's uh, anyone who thinks the Bible was put together just randomly and uh, by a bunch of men without any thought. This is just absolutely bizarre. You could never make this stuff up in your life. Okay, the third point about the day of the Lord. The third thing about the day of the Lord we need to know is that this will be the gathering of believers. This will be the day of resurrection. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest of those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. So the big questions these guys had were, what happens to those who have died before Jesus returns? Do they miss the resurrection? Paul's answer, in short, not at all. Not only, do, not only is there an order to the resurrection, but those who have, who have died first, which was their concern, what happens to them, those who have died first actually rise first and receive their physical bodies. He sees that in 15. We who are alive and remain until the coming Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the dead rise first, and then those who are alive at the second coming, the believers who are on this earth, will then be, get, receive their resurrected bodies second. They will, they will be transformed at that point. So not only are the, are the dead not missed, Paul says, there's a priority. They take priority. They're first out of the grave. Now here's where I'm going to take a... This is where I might start to challenge some of you. And I, challenge, it was a, I had to switch my theology myself a number of years ago when I first read these. I used to believe in something called the rapture. The rapture is different from the second coming. So the second coming is when Jesus comes to judge the world and he, he, he hits the Mount of Olives and destroys the unbelievers. The rapture is seen as a, a separate event. It's when they use 1 Thessalonians 4 and say Jesus comes halfway down in the clouds. All the believers get resurrected out of this world. Stealth, like we don't even see him coming. It's stealth. It's stealth mode. It's just unexpected. And then all of a sudden we're all up into heaven with him and then that's where we are. And then for a period of time, the ungodly people sort of run around the world going, what in the world just happened? Like, where is everybody? That's going to start a massive revival. People come to Christ and then Christ will eventually return with us like a, a years later. For those who believe in the pre-tribulation, um, which I'll explain if you don't understand that in dialogue, that's a seven-year time period. So everyone goes to heaven for seven years and comes back seven years later. If you've read the Left Behind series, you know what I'm talking about, or if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where Jesus, all of a sudden, like we're going about our business, like flying airplanes, working, and poof, we're gone, we're in heaven, and the world goes, what happened to all the people? And the planes crash to the earth, and the cars crash on the ground, and the banks are missing their clerks, and all sorts of crazy things. The thing about this is that um, there's no such thing as the rapture that I can see in the Bible. I don't know of any Old Testament passage that speaks of two separate comings of Messiah. Secondly, Thessalonians makes it clear. Listen, these guys are not PhDs. They're lay people. They're just people like you and I that are just the average Christian. And they say, when is the Lord coming? And what's it going to look like? And he says, here's the order of events. You, you Thessalonians, like people like you are going to see the apostasy the Antichrist and the seating of the temple. There's, there's no, he didn't say the day of the Lord, you're going to get raptured first, this is going to happen second. This is clearly one day and one day only. Jesus himself affirms these two events and or affirms this order in Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. There's no mention of two separate events. He comes once, visible to both believers and unbelievers of life. There'll be no secret when he returns. I have references in my notes, if you would like the scripture references, where both believers and believers alike will see the return of the Lord. 
but further consideration that there'll be no rapture in terms of like two separate events, like the sort of left behind series, is to understand what the Greek word parousia means in ancient culture. Now, the, the word coming, second coming, the word is parousia. That's what it is in Greek, okay? It just means presence. That's all it means. Now, this is credit to scholars like N.T. Wright, Ben Witherington, and people like Peter Fast. They've taught me these things. But when it, it's extra biblical, but just hold on to it for a second. Whenever an emperor came to visit a province or colony, the citizens of the region understood his arrival as the parousia. So if your emperor came to visit you, they'd say, the Perusia is coming, the royal presence of a king, he's coming. Now, how the citizens of the city or colony would respond is when they knew he was getting close, they wouldn't wait at the gates for him to enter. That would be considered disrespectful for the king to show up and you just sort of stay huddled in your home. The people would flood out of their homes into the, into the countryside and greet the king and royally escort him back. They would royally escort him back to their colony. The rapture teaches the opposite. The rapture says this, you're going to go and be with the Lord, floating somewhere up there in the sky for a long period of time, about seven years, and the focus there is that we get to be with God in heaven. The word parousia in that culture was opposite. It's not about us, you going to the king and staying with him forever. It's about you going to the king and bringing him back to your home as quickly as possible. The whole thing is about bringing the king to earth. So the rapture teaches the opposite. It's all about going to the, the heavens. And, and, and it's, but we see in scripture, it's all about bringing Jesus back to this world. So even if we go into the air, like the text suggests in verse 17, this will be very temporary. He would only rescue us out of this world to judge it. That's it. It's a time. It'd be a time for judgment, and it'd be a quick return to earth. And the purpose for removal again was for judgment, but the goal is for believers to be transformed, to be resurrected, but dwell in the presence of Jesus here on this earth now. Which leads me to my final point of the sermon. The purpose of the day of the Lord is to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. New heavens and new earth. Look at Second Peter now with me as we finish. Look at here in verse 10. When he comes like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its work shall be burned up. But in verse 12, 13, he says this. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth which righteousness dwells. The day of the Lord will usher in a new creation. Now this deserves its own sermon series too, and I've got books like that thick that have written just about this topic. But this is really important, church. If I were to ask you, where do you think you go when you die? Where do you think you go? You might say, well, we go to heaven. And I'd say, where do you think heaven is? And you'd say, well, I don't know for sure, but it's probably somewhere up there near Pluto or like in the Milky Way, or it's like, it's, it's definitely beyond the clouds. It's a, it's a different, whole different destiny than we can even understand. Or if I ask your kids, like if you describe heaven to your kids, like what do you say? Well, heaven's like up there, like where God lives, right? I'm not saying, well, I'll get into that in dialogue, maybe. And you might even think, well, this is a place where you go and play a harp and you sit on the clouds, sort of like the Care Bears and kind of do your thing. But notice, but notice what Peter says here. 
This view of life after death in Western theology was adopted from the Greeks. Philosophers like Plato taught dualism, meaning the earth is bad, the spiritual is good. So gods want nothing to do with this wicked earth. They, have, they don't care about this wicked earth whatsoever. The key is to keep your spirit pure. So when you die, it's all about like your spiritual state and having a spiritual bliss. God doesn't care about this world. And so it's all about this sort of spiritual protection of your own soul. But that's a Plato version of understanding this. This is not, West, this is not what the biblical understanding of heaven is. When we look at the theology of the Jews in the New Testament, you're going to see a surprising difference. They believe that heaven is here on earth. They believe that the heaven, that the, the new creation, that heavens and earth would be united for here and now in the present. I'm going to show it to you. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. This is the disciples. To Jesus after the resurrection. So he's crucified, raised back to earth. He's back on this earth, right? So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Listen to their question. Is it at this time, now that you're resurrected, that the kingdom of Israel here and now is going to be restored? And you're going to rule here and now and be present? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice what he doesn't say. You've got it wrong. We're all going to heaven together above the clouds near Pluto. He doesn't say that. He says this. Uh, you just, it's not for you to know the time in which I am going to do that. In other words, you've got the theology right. I am going to rule in this physical earth and the kingdom. But the time is not yet. For now, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit of this guarantee. But that's for future. Look at the thief on the cross. I have read this so many times, used it in discipleship so many times, I've missed it until this week. We talk about me learning new things. I learned something new this week. Look at the thief's theology. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Where? Here. Now, when I die on this cross... Will you remember me when you come to rule on this earth and be in this kingdom? And he says to him, Truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. So in other words, Jesus is saying this, You got it right. I am going to have a future kingdom. But don't worry. You're not gonna, uh, I can't give that to you now. But I'll give you a, a deposit, an inheritance right now to promise you that a future inheritance in the future. So you'll be with me in paradise today. But that's not, that's not where we're staying. That's not, where, that's not the final destination. There's a resurrection that's going to take place. You're going to get a body. And you're going to come back on this earth and dwell with me. The disciples, after the resurrection, believed in the kingdom. Of, the heaven and earth are united here and now. The, the, the thief on the cross believes that to be resurrected or to be with Jesus is to be here on this earth now. This is super important, church. This is, like, this is really important because we have this picture of heaven in our minds that is not right. At least I didn't have it right. Maybe you have it right, okay? So, fair enough if you do. Good, I'm glad, proud of you if you do. John, the disciple in Revelation 21, he described the final resting place of all believers being in the presence of Jesus. But, but, he, but he, um, he says, heaven... I see the new city of Jerusalem coming down to earth. So, it's not, we're not going up to heaven to be with Jesus. Jesus is coming down. The new Jerusalem is coming down. And heaven and earth 
become one. This, this planet here right now. It'll be tangible. We'll live here back on earth again in our resurrected form. Christ will be on this earth. Heaven and earth will be united as one. I want you, I'll finish with these quotes from N.T. Wright. Surprised by Hope is his book. The whole point of the Christian faith is not to follow Jesus away from the earth to heaven and stay there forever. On the contrary, the one who has gone into heaven will come back. Now, I don't believe when Peter speaks of the world being burned up, he's going to obliterate it and start over. When he destroyed the world with a flood, he only refashioned what already exists. He just took the world as it was and remodeled it, so to speak. When he, when he does the burning up of the world, he's not going to obliterate it into like smithereens and have this fresh new planet over here, a thousand miles or a hundred million miles away. He's going to take what already exists and refashion this world. He loves this place. He loves this place. He created it in the Garden of Eden to dwell amongst us. He's just, he loves creation. He doesn't hate this wicked world. He loves it. Creation in Romans 8 groans for the redemption of itself. It wants to be liberated from its slavery. It's going to, this world's going to continue to exist. That's, this is heaven in the new creation. It's right here on this earth. I think of it like Play-Doh. When we make, my kids make creations, and then they have this little like, formed man, and then they squash it, and then they start over and make a new creation. That's what God's going to do with this world. It's not a whole batch of new Play-Doh. It's the existing Play-Doh. To quote N.T. Wright again, when God renews the whole cosmos, Jesus himself will be personally present as the center and focus of the new world that will result, and we will be with him. So when your kids next time say, where do we go when we die? You say, right here, right here. You're gonna end up right back here. Maybe not in Okotoks, the cities of Jerusalem's in the Middle East, so you'll probably be in that area of the world. But heaven and earth will be united as one. You'll be right here, right now, new creation, resurrected body with a physical Jesus, and we will all physically have resurrected bodies and we'll be continuing in on life. But no sin, no crying, no death, no temptation, all of that stuff is gone. I hope that changes your view of heaven. So number one lesson. Jesus' reference to the coming like a thief in the night is for the judgment of unbelievers only and not for believers. This whole Left Behind series about him all of a sudden appearing and poof, we're gone. And we, he came like a thief and he raptured us doesn't exist. He come, that's a time of judgment. He comes as our savior, not as our thief. The only parallel we share in the thief-like qualities is the suddenness of it, the quickness of it. That's the only parallel we share. However, we don't share it in the same way as the unbelieving world because although we are taught that Christ's return is imminent, certain events must take place before his return. We're not going to be caught off guard. When I watch apostasy going on, when I watch the temple being rebuilt, and I see if I'm alive, if I see the presence of the Antichrist, I know the time is near. So yes, I don't know the exact hour and the exact day, I don't get that, but I know the time is near. Third lesson, when the Lord returns, the resurrection of all believers will take place. We will receive our new physical bodies at that time. The dead in the graves will rise first, so your grandma and grandpa Christians, great grandma and grandpa Christians, whatever, you know, David, Moses, poof, they'll all get their bodies, and then we'll be second if we're still alive. We'll, if we're still alive, we'll go second. There'll be an order to the resurrection. We'll be transformed in a twinkling of an eye, as Paul says. 
Alright? And finally, now this word, this lesson is not worded well. At least I don't think so. But you'll get the point. Christ's return will usher in a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with him. I guess it's not too bad, but yeah. So again, when the day of the Lord comes, a new heavens will come, a new earth, and we will dwell with him here and now, not in outer space somewhere floating around. If we're in the air for any period of time, it's while the Lord executes judgment, and then we're back here right away. There's no, there's no waiting around. If it takes him 40 days to execute judgment, we're gone for 40 days. If it takes 10 days, we're gone for 10 days. We're not up there for eons and eons waiting in heaven permanently. We're coming back to this earth to dwell and be in His presence. Alright. So, I tried to stick to the absolutes of the passage that are undeniable, but you may still have questions about it. And uh, you might have a lot of questions too that I will not have answers for. And uh, I don't feel bad about that actually because... Again, people that I trust didn't have answers for me either when I asked them some of my hard questions. So, <laughs> but I believe there are answers for all these questions. I think, I think we can answer them from Scripture. We just need more time and more, more exposure and more teaching. So.